0: Even if you haven't done a mental health first aid course, even if you don't know very much about mental health, the most important thing is actually not the precise words that you say, but that you express genuine care without judgment.
1: I'm Danny Vallant, and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. So we've been talking about mental health in hospitality on dirty linen for a fortnight. And I am really thrilled to wrap up this fortnight with Dr. Claire Kelly. She's the Director of Research and Curriculum at Mental Health First Aid Australia. And the first time I heard about mental health first aid was on the first Monday. So last Monday, the very first uh, day of the um, mental health week in hospitality as it was going to be then, but then it just seemed too important. So I extended it for another week. The way I heard about it was that Bianca Welsh, who was the first person I spoke to, to this topic, got off the call from me and then felt really remiss that she hadn't mentioned mental health first aid because it had made such a big difference to her in her business. Um, And she, she said to me, we have to talk about it. I know that this saves lives. So I thought, well, why not go straight to the source? Let's talk to Mental Health First Aid Australia themselves. And I'm really thrilled to have Claire here um, who can tell us all about what it is and what they do. So thank you so much for being part of Dirty Linen, Claire.
0: Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited.
1: Yeah. Well, tell me what Mental Health First Aid is. Sure. So Mental Health First
0: Aid is the help that you can provide someone who is developing a mental health problem, ideally as early as possible, uh, who is experiencing a worsening of an existing mental health problem or who is in crisis. So, for example, if someone is having thoughts of suicide or has been engaging in self-injury or perhaps has experienced something really uh, traumatic. And Mental Health First Aid Australia, we actually provide training to instructors who are all over the country, which is good news for anyone who's interested in doing a course. Uh, We actually have about 2,500 instructors at the moment all over over Australia. And we have also um, spread to 30 countries now. So we have a, a very large international base.
1: So this started in Australia?
0: It did. It did. It was a tiny little program that started in Canberra back in the year 2000, which is uh, 20 years ago. This was supposed to have been our big anniversary year, but uh, unfortunately the, the world <laughs> sort of changed very rapidly this year. It's made it a little bit tricky for us to celebrate. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was the idea was that it was something that might run a couple of times a year and, and Betty Kitchener and Tony Jorm, who are the founders of Mental Health First Aid, have were really quite excited to see right from the very beginning that people said, no, this is something that we really need and it grew very, very
1: fast. Well, I, I just love the concept that, uh, you know, just as you might learn CPR or know how to put on a Band-Aid, uh, you – uh, you are, as a, just a normal member of the community or someone who's, you know, works with others in a, in a workplace, you're able to assist people just in in that sort of, in that crisis mode or in that emergency, just be a little bit of a, a triage before that person can go on and get whatever other help they need. I just love it as a concept. It seems so obvious when you think about it.
0: It does. It does. And it's really important because most of the time people don't realize that they are developing a mental health problem or may believe that they should be able to just think their way out of it. And really the skills for those, that first sort of couple of conversations, it's really about, hey, I'm concerned about some of what I've noticed and you don't seem to be too happy lately. They are not complicated skills to learn, but they're really important skills to get right. Uh, so that we can talk in a way that is non-stigmatizing, that does promote someone accepting the help that they need. Uh, and also that uh, in, by starting those conversations and by having those conversations in quite a natural way, we can have a great impact on the way that mental illness and mental health problems are viewed in the community.
1: Yeah, because I mean, we know about Are You OK Day, and I mean, I guess that is opening up the conversation. But it does seem like a very short question with not much guidance about what to do next. I mean, what are some good questions to ask and good a good mindset to carry into those conversations?
0: Yes, well, actually, I think it's it's a really good comparison, actually, because I think Are You Okay Day is a really wonderful concept. But over the last few years, we really have had more and more people saying, well, if you're going to ask that question, it's definitely important that you are going to be able to deal with the answer and that you're feeling prepared to actually continue the conversation because, of course, the fear is if you say, are you okay, and the person says, no, I'm not, and what do we say next? So first of all, it's really important that before you approach somebody who you have concerns about, that you actually take a moment for yourself to think, am I in the right frame of mind right now? If someone says, no, I'm not okay, am I going to say, well, pull yourself together <laughs> because that's not going to be very helpful? Um, or am I in a position to say, hey, look, I'd really like to talk to you about this. Do you have some time now? Can we talk about it? Um, or perhaps, you know, is there a time that we could get together later on? Um, but, as, but as soon as possible because it's once you have offered someone help, it's really important that they know – and see that they are going to get the help that they've that you've offered them.
1: I feel also that so many times you'd ask someone, you know, how they're doing, are you okay? And they'd say, yeah, I'm fine, but you might just really know that they're not. And I suppose is, it, is are you able to teach skills about how to sort of read through some of those answers where people, you can tell that someone needs help. Yes. And as you say, you know, people might not be aware themselves, like, yeah, what can you do when that happens?
0: Yeah, I've actually got a, a trick that I like to teach around uh, when somebody has said that they're fine or there's nothing wrong and that is that at the next step you say, I, I guess I'm concerned that I've noticed lately that you don't seem too happy, that you haven't been as engaged, that you're not as talkative. And the person might still, still say no, I'm fine, or it's none of your business. And then we can actually start to to mention some really specific things that we've noticed. So, for example, you know, we usually – all sit down for a cup of coffee after the lunchtime shift before the dinner shift. And lately I just, I feel like I don't see you stick around as often. Um, And things that really indicate that there has been a withdrawal or there is a shift in mood. Uh, Might even be, I mean, one of the things about hospitality, of course, is that you're frequently around things. It could be quite dangerous. So If somebody is not themselves and they are operating cooking equipment or if they're carrying hot liquids, things like that, there is a risk of of something going wrong. So being a little bit more specific and then saying, look, it's okay if you don't want to talk, but perhaps would you give it a little bit of thought and maybe come back to me another time? Or would you think about somebody else that you might feel more willing to talk to? So it doesn't have to be about you. It might be that you're not the right person to talk to them. It might be that uh, maybe there's a power relationship there. If you're the boss, it's going to be really hard. If there's been a complicated relationship, it might be really hard. But it might be that uh, by just opening that conversation up for the first time you've paved the way for them to make um, another kind of contact
1: that is such a good point because I feel some people would often it might be someone that you don't have much to do with or that you don't get on with or yeah as you say there might be some history but that you can still feel empowered to be a, a helping hand for that person even if you're not the direct conduit of that assistance
0: yeah that's right
1: you speak very comfortably about the hospitality world, Claire, so tell me why that is. <laughs>
0: oh, I, I had years of hospitality when I was um, back in university. I worked in some extremely busy cafes and uh, and uh, worked in a lovely Irish pub for the last uh, several years of my hospitality career before I uh, finished up my PhD and, and started working full-time in this mental health space. And it certainly... I didn't realise at the time, perhaps without having the mental health background that I have now. But there are some risk factors that are really specific to the hospitality world. But there are also some really great opportunities for, for colleagues to be supportive of each other as well.
1: Well, let's dig into those a little bit. So first of all, what do you see as the particular risks in hospitality?
0: When when we're working shifts, particularly when we're working very late shifts, and I'm thinking about uh, some of the days when I used to work four pm to four am, sometimes in the pub, and uh, your colleagues are your entire social life, and often you're finishing up work very late. Uh, Sit down for an after-work drink, which might become several after-work drinks, and it can become really normal to have a level of, for example, substance misuse that becomes part of, part and parcel of being part of that group. Um, And there's no one judging you because everyone's doing the same thing, so it's very easy for that to feel extremely normal. Um, At the same time as that, we've got uh, people you might not see as much sunlight during the day, particularly in the winter. And sunlight is actually really important for good mental health. Getting up first thing in the morning and actually going outside to see the sun is a really good way of waking up parts of the brain that can otherwise be a little bit sluggish in the morning. It can actually be a help for people who experience more depression in the winter Um, and as well as that, it's a highly casualised workforce which can often have some serious uh, job insecurity, I guess, and and a lot of people are feeling that right now with a major shift from staffed restaurants to a lot of takeaway food and obviously smaller workforces, and there's often not the same level of protection, so there can be a real sense that that life is a little bit... uh, uh fragile i guess that almost anything could happen any second not quite the same sense of security as there can be in some sorts of settings
1: that's yeah definitely i mean it's everything at the moment is very destabilized and People don't have some people, so many people. Even if they're casual, they might have a large part of their identity and their social life, as you say, wrapped up in their workplace. And even if you know maybe they're still work with the same workplace, but the social setting is obviously completely different. So you don't get the same supports out of that. Even if at the same time, perhaps you don't get the same um, after-work drinks and all those things that may in turn be a little bit problematic. But yeah it's just all shaken up, basically.
0: Absolutely. It's still your social life. It's still your social life. And for some people, uh, it might be making it really difficult to uh, access any of the supports that they're usually used to. And certainly us down here in Victoria, we're really looking at the long haul at the moment.
1: Yeah. So tell me what some of the opportunities are in the hospitality space.
0: Well, I think in a funny way, some of them are the same ones. I think that, uh, I mean, I can't remember a time when I was as close to a group of people as I was with some of my hospitality friends. You know, we were really there. We had a an unusual life compared to everybody else, especially those of us who, you know, were also at university and probably not as immersed in that that setting as we were in our hospitality setting, in the bar or the, or the cafe, where... You know, I think that we knew each other really well. We saw each other through a lot of different things. We were very open with each other probably because of the the sort of frenetic nature of that sort of work and I think that once you get to a point where you feel that you're able to talk to somebody about what's going on in their life, you've really got a great opportunity there that is perhaps enabled by the fact that the setting can be a lot less formal than a white-collar workplace, for example, or um or a a labour sort of setting. Um, So, yeah, so actually embracing that close friendship I think is a really good start.
1: What are some ways that people could get the good things about it with, the, you know, the friendship uh, and that closeness and, you know, going through thick and thin together, but not have some of those more uh, damaging habits, maybe, you know, whether it's drinking every night to excess or those those kinds of things?
0: You know, I think it's actually, it's really important to actually even just start with that conversation, just sort of say, hey, you know, if we, if other people in our lives knew how much we were drinking, how would we feel about that, for example? Uh, if you know would would you drink like this around um family members and I'm not saying that everybody in hospitality has a drinking problem please don't um don't imagine that I that I would say that but actually whatever the perhaps more problematic habits that your group has sort of fallen into it's really worth examining them you know, can you find ways to have that closeness without alcohol for example um are there ways that you can connect in other ways uh you know, going for a walk between split shifts, for example, instead of um, sitting around and and uh, and doing other things, or is it possible to have some more to actually get away from the setting when you finish work? If you're going to continue socialising, you know, go somewhere else, go to somebody's house, or or find another setting to to spend in.
1: Yeah. I know that Nathan Tolman, who we spoke to earlier in the week, um, has a a gardening program for his staff and that a lot of people found that incredibly uh, nurturing and sustaining in a, a really different way, not only to connect with each other but to connect to nature and to the produce that they were using to in their kitchens so i mean i think if that's a possibility that that could be a really
0: nice thing oh can i go and work for him
1: (laughs) well maybe (laughs) maybe hit him up after we're out of lockdown because i don't know if he's hiring right now. maybe maybe (laughs) but yeah Uh, i think
0: it's interesting something like Something like gardening, actually, in addition to, I mean, the obvious connection that you've got there with the with the food industry, is that anything that we do that gives us a sense of connectedness, a sense of achievement, a sense of being able to do something that perhaps I thought was a little bit too difficult or a bit too boring or a bit too, you know, out of my reach, whatever it might be, actually is good for our mental health. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it's it's uh it's about something that you can enjoy and engage with, and particularly if you can do that with a social setting, it can be it can be really really helpful. So I I love that he's doing that.
1: Yeah, it's really it's really forward thinking. Um, so one of the things that people often feel bad about when someone around them is having a, a mental health crisis is you know the, is that powerlessness that you feel or that thought, you know, what what could I do? Like what more could I have done to head this off? Um, can you speak to that? Like wh- what are some of the things, actions that we can take for the people around us?
0: Well, the most important thing is well and truly reaching out. Uh, a lot of people might feel that they're actually concealing their symptoms really well. They can feel as if well everybody else copes with these things so why can't I and feel as if the only way to to function I guess is to is to really just harden up which doesn't help it really doesn't um, but by actually just letting the person know that you care and remember that even if you haven't done a mental health first aid course even if you don't know very much about mental health the most important thing is actually not the precise words that you say uh, but that you express genuine care without judgment. So, for example, we would never say to someone just, uh, you know, you really need to change your attitude. You've got to change this behavior. These things can't happen anymore. Actually just saying, hey, it looks like you're really struggling and I just want to be here for you with that is a much more supportive way to talk to them. (laughs) Starting the conversation is a really important thing, but actually having a, a really quite consistent way that you respond to the person is also really important so if you've been kind and supportive today but tomorrow you snap or in two weeks you say well nothing seems to have changed so I don't know why I bothered then you can really sort of send them straight back into that shell so being really consistent about saying you know you you can talk to me again if you need to you know not saying talk to me anytime if you don't want to be woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning or, or ten o'clock in the morning. Let's face it, it's hospitality. Um, but but you you need to be realistic about what you can offer and not take too much on. Be helpful in getting the person engaged with you know ideally some professional help. But but being really consistent in the support that you do offer them.
1: Uh, I mean you could. If a person opens up to you and they're really in a crisis and perhaps they even uh, have thoughts of um, self-harm or suicide, that could be very scary for somebody to hear and to know what to do next. I mean, I understand that you teach a course in how to deal with this, so I don't want to diminish the you know, the depth of what you teach when you undertake the course. But is there a... Yeah, well, how can people... Uh, know what to do in such a situation, and also look after themselves when they're they're given the weight of some pretty heavy stuff.
0: Yeah, look, it's a really good question, and you're right. We we do teach a lot of work around suicide, uh, around suicide first aid, supporting someone when they're having thoughts of suicide. But I can still give you a couple of little really simple things, and that is that if somebody's having thoughts of suicide, if somebody's talking about suicide. You need to take that really seriously. And I think that it's a, a big myth in the community that people who talk about it don't do it. There's this idea that, well, if they were really serious, they'd just do it. Actually, most people who die by suicide have tried to talk to somebody about the way that they're feeling. And it's often uh, a, just not understanding what the person is saying when they try to reach out that has. Uh, that makes people think that they haven't. So, for example, if someone says, "Like, I just feel like I'm such a burden, and I, I wish I think that everyone would be better off without me," that's that's somebody saying that they really need to talk about just how helpless and hopeless they are feeling. So, having starting that conversation, recognizing that a person might be having thoughts of suicide talking to them about it, asking really directly, have you been thinking about killing yourself or are you having thoughts of suicide? And if they say yes, engaging them with someone who can support them in the very short term. So, for example, you know, it might be just picking up the phone together and calling Lifeline or the suicide callback service.
1: There's still such a taboo in our society to speak about suicide. I mean, I feel even like a bit of a chill saying the word. It's just such a scary horrible life-changing event to encounter in any way that there and there is this taboo that speaking about it makes it happen even if you you know still read a a newspaper article and it only becomes evident when you get to the bottom and you see the number for lifeline and beyond blue that that's what's happened you know that person has killed themselves Uh, you know do we need to get past this taboo and does talking about suicide actually make it more or less likely to happen
0: yeah, okay. Well, look, I, I think for a start, it is time that it we shook that taboo. I think that we, there are so many things that once we imagined we absolutely could not talk to other people about, whether friends or family or anybody at all. And suicide is actually a really important thing to talk about. I think people really need to know that... They're not the only ones that have had thoughts of suicide for a start. I I think it's extremely common and having thoughts of suicide doesn't mean that you are going to go through with it. So having people less afraid of talking about what's going on in their heads can actually potentially make them less likely to act on those thoughts. And that's another part of it is if we talk to somebody who is having thoughts of suicide, we actually do decrease the risk that they will take action. Uh, If they had the chance to talk about it. So, for example, if someone says, you know, sometimes I just, I think uh, I'd be better off if I just killed myself. It's really important that we say something like, wow, that sounds like you're really doing things tough right now. Can we talk a little bit about what's been going on rather than, well, you can't do that. Think of your friends and family because that's not helpful at all. And it may actually be that that person is thinking of their friends and family and think that their friends and family would be better off. So it is really important that we are able to have a non-judgmental conversation about it. I think the the question of how the media reports on suicide is actually a really important one and it's related but it's not the same sort of issue. So we know that when somebody when the they report on suicide and talk about things like how the person actually took action to end their life that it for people who are distressed and vulnerable perhaps have been having thoughts of suicide, they're actually uh, a little more likely to take action because there is this idea that, okay, well, this was something that worked. So the media does have guidelines about the way that they are required to report about suicide. And I agree, sometimes it does... I feel like they've just skimmed over that until suddenly you can see that this is, you know, if you're distressed by this article called Lifeline, and uh, perhaps they're not quite always getting the exact right tone there. But it's uh, it's definitely different reading about suicide when you're perhaps sitting on your own and vulnerable versus the opportunity to talk about it with someone who you believe cares. So, yeah, it's time to get rid of that taboo, I think, especially when you realise how relieved somebody can be when you say, hey... You know, you can talk about it with me. The person realises that they don't actually have to sit with it by themselves.
1: So, if someone there's so there's the person that says that, and or you know, gives you a signal, a verbal signal that that's something they're they're considering or something that's flashed across their mind. What are some of the other signals that people might give you that you, that you need to look out for?
0: Well, the big ones are is words that they might say that indicate that they they're not valuing their life in the same way. So talking about helplessness and hopelessness, losing that sense of uh, looking forward to the future or what they might be doing with their future. Um, There might be a... Uh, there might be actually starting to sort of tie up some loose ends. There might be some heartfelt apologies about major incidents that have occurred in the past or or talking about uh, wrapping up legal issues, things like that. Um, there might be – the person might be actually looking for information about poisons or other things that might kill them. But really a lot of the time it is going to be those statements like everyone would just be better off if I wasn't here – um, that really – and, and the, the thing is that when we hear something like that, I, I think often that we do have a little bit of an alarm bell that goes off in our heads. It says, oh, that sounds bad. And rather than say, hey, that sounds like a really difficult way to be feeling, can we talk a little bit more about that? We often say, no, they wouldn't. Everybody loves you. And that's just not helpful when a person's sort of really uh, – experiencing that sort of level of distress and hopelessness um but really just follow your instincts as well I think the other thing that we I can talk to you about warning signs but if you know someone really well and you've got a gut feeling that something is really really wrong ask the question rather than not asking it because you can't do any harm by asking and once, and when you have asked at least the person, if nothing else, the person knows that in the future you would be a person that they could talk to if they are having thoughts of suicide.
1: And you said before that one thing you could do is sit down with that person and together call Lifeline or another Helpline. What are some other things that you could do to, to really be next to them in this crisis? <laughs>
0: Honestly, being next to them is a, is a really, really big start because most people won't act on thoughts of suicide when there is another person present. So being simply physically there with them while they are in extreme distress can be a really good start. But you can also go to the local emergency room. You can get in contact with our health service. Uh, you can even go to the GP. And I think people say, oh, you, there's no point in the GP because you you, you won't get an appointment. For a week, but actually, if you call and say, "Hey, I'm with someone here who's a client of your service, and and they're having thoughts of suicide, and they really need to talk to somebody quickly," then they're going to do what they can to get you seen as soon as possible. Uh, and it might be that um, that really that that suicidal crisis only lasts for a few hours or a few days and that the person starts to feel a little bit better and you can be seeking treatment in the meantime but most people won't stay acutely suicidal for long periods of time. You know, a few hours to a couple of days is about as as much as it's likely to be. And then there might be another crisis down the track, might be in another week or in another month, but being able to just be present with the person and talk about, talk with them about what it is that's been keeping them going so far can be helpful.
1: When you're talking about, you know, the things not to say to someone, this this phrase, like, you know, to cheer someone up comes into my mind. And I guess, what do you think about that whole idea of cheering someone up?
0: Well, you know, I think it's a bizarre thing that we do, especially if you think to yourself, if I was feeling the worst I have ever felt, and someone says, cheer up, (laughs) none of us have a good reaction to that it just doesn't work and I'll tell you what if someone has a mental health problem or somebody's having thoughts of suicide if they could just cheer up they would and it's really just not that easy but actually saying you know what are some things that do help you to feel better when you're feeling unhappy when you're feeling like this a conversation about actions that can be taken especially if it's something that they can suggest for themselves that they know has worked in the past is probably going to be a lot more helpful. So, for example, you know, often it might be that, and especially now, I think, when so much of what we do has been somewhat limited. Uh, if we can think of things that we've done in the past that we can maybe reconnect with, such as taking a long bath, do, spending some time reading, taking advantage of what we can do in terms of exercise, uh, getting out there and, and getting some fresh air as much as we can and uh, talking about the things that do give you a sense of achievement and ability and and. Uh, and really just sort of get the blood pumping a little bit, all of those can be helpful.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I means, you you know, we're obviously in very unusual times right now, um, especially here in Melbourne, where our daily lives are very restricted. Uh, and especially for hospitality people who are used to being busy and active and connecting with, you know, many people in a normal day. What are some of the things that people might be feeling and uh, what what kinds of things could they do about it and indeed help? People around them?
0: I think that for a start, it's really important to think about what you've actually lost at the moment is it just a sense of identity is it the social aspect of this kind of work and actually really think critically about what are some ways that i can bring some of that back if you can't make it to if you're not working at all for example if you i know that a lot of places have pivoted to doing a lot of delivery and i know that that's not possible for all sorts of organizations and companies but are there ways that you can actually reconnect and spend time with your colleagues? You know who's, who's uh, a company you actually enjoy that doesn't involve work. Can you make a regular coffee date with them in the, you know, at at whatever time you might otherwise have been able to sit down before or after a shift? Uh, Can you find new ways of um, engaging with your kitchen, engaging with food and with, look, I think as you said, what Nathan's been doing for his staff and his restaurant, I think that's just so wonderful and it is likely to have an, an impact on people's moods in all sorts of wonderful ways uh and for some people I think that um, the the fun of being out in an environment where perhaps there's music playing and there's there's new people to meet there are things that are going on online um, they're not obviously they're not the same but they are they can still be a lot of fun to engage with there's uh, a lot of pretty amazing concerts that have been happening online even just uh, people getting online and, and playing music live on Facebook amazing numbers of incredible Australian musicians in particular i've just been really enjoying my friday nights actually (laughs) but it's really it's 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 not just a matter of saying we've everything's different we have to find something else you really need to think about what is it that you are missing and and finding ways that um, that you might be able to engage with that again and the same with if you're concerned about someone what are they missing and how can you recreate that in a different way
1: you know, I've been listening to live music like like my old, like old Tom Petty live Pack Up the Plantation concert albums because just like to hear – those big choruses from the crowd like yelling back the the lyrics like I just find that very uplifting right now just to think about I don't even want to be in a mosh pit but just to think about a mosh pit makes me feel like nostalgic and happy let's just think you know all that 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 nostalgic exchange of bodily fluids and sweat <laughs> and public. Just there's something you know all those like uh people I've brushed past at the footy as we like line up for pies i just think oh i love all of you i just want to rub elbows with you again one day at the mcg so yeah i think it is the i think there's things that you miss that you just wouldn't think of like shuffling through a crowd at the mcg you wouldn't have thought that was one of my favorite things in life but yeah (laughs) i have noticed that that's something i'm missing
0: yeah, oh, do you know I hadn't even thought about listening to old recordings of live concerts, and now I've just got my entire library of CDs going through my head, and that's going to be my weekend.
1: Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to give you something to do in ice. Live sorry, concerts through yep. the ages. <laughs> yes. What's it, What's it like for yeah, you yes. in this space? Like you're dealing with. Um. You're dealing with. I guess you're at sort of at the frontier of human feeling and the things that can go wrong for people in their lives. What's it, what's it like for you? Uh,
0: actually, that's not, probably not quite accurate. I think because my focus is on research and curriculum development, um, I can support the people that are at that front line, uh, but I'm not necessarily at that front line beyond the fact that You know, I think that um, we do get a lot of contacts from people saying, you know, help, what what can I do? What should I be doing for this person? Uh, It's not quite the same as probably some of the community services professionals who are really out there on the front lines um, and need all the support that we can give them as well. But it's certainly, it's... uh, we've been looking at how we can make sure that the material that we have available and the the courses that we run are available to people now because the our concern is that people really want these skills right now they really want this information and they can't necessarily get it in the way that they usually would have uh, the you know even long after the pandemic is done, we're going to have people who are experiencing the the after effects of of uh, food insecurity and job insecurity and financial strife, and we want to do everything that we can to upskill people in the community, whether it's family members or friends or uh, support services that are that are based in the community to actually know how to respond to someone who's developing mental health problems because of what's been going on.
1: Well, I think it's just brilliant what you do and I would encourage everybody to have a look at the, uh, the uh, Mental Health uh, First Aid website at mhfa.com.au and there are links there where you can you can become a trainer but you can also connect to people who are running courses in Mental Health First Aid and uh, my The way I heard about it from Bianca down in Tasmania, she's found it an incredibly valuable course to have run in her restaurant. Um, Claire, it's been amazing to dip into your expertise today. it's um try to push past some of those barriers and the things that we're allowed to talk about and the ways that we're able to help people even as just regular citizens bumbling through our lives so thank you so much for wrapping up a fortnight of conversations around mental health on dirty linen it's uh yeah been real really fantastic to have you on the show thanks for having me anytime this is dirty linen and i'm danny Valant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.
0: This is a
1: Deep in the Wheats production.